Welcome to episode 10 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie von Latke. On this episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Saitman, to talk about what we can expect in terms of foreign and defense policy now that the election is behind us. We discuss the protests in Baghdad and if there are any implications for the Canadian-led NATO mission in Iraq. We also chat about our recent trips abroad and Halloween. This week, we have a short interview with Elikem Tameni from Dalhousie. His work is on governance challenges in Africa. Our feature interview is with Lindy Heineken from Stellenbosch University. Her work is on peacekeeping and the South African military. Finally, Steve's Halloween edition, Peeve, is on the movie World War Z. All right, Stephanie, uh, we're repeating last summer's pattern of us both both being on the road. Uh, you were in Brussels. I was in Denver and Hamburg. What were you doing in Brussels? I went to the NATO headquarters in Brussels and to shape the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe in Mons, Belgium. I actually had some research interviews to conduct, mostly on NATO's operational planning process. And on the political side of the house, I needed a few more details on committee deliberations. I find it a bit hard sometimes to piece together NATO rules and procedures from the outside and for certain information. All you can do is just show up and ask. So I did that. And the information I gathered is for a background chapter in my book, which won't be as exciting as the chapters that focus on the missions in Iraq, Kosovo and the Baltics, but which is important for understanding of how NATO relies on its political and military bodies to implement decisions. And for those who didn't listen to our first podcasts, what's your book about? It's called Deploying Feminism, the Role of Gender in Military Operations, and it looks at NATO's adaptations to gender directives and how this is implemented across its missions. But I was lucky anyone wanted to see me at all while I was in Brussels because there was a defense ministerial that was happening that same week. Were you paying attention to the NATO defense ministerial at all? Not really, because I was traveling back and forth between Denver and then Hamburg. I was in Denver for the international studies sections meeting. It's a subsection of the ISA and the American Political Science Association and the International Studies Association. And I'm an officer of the organization, so I went and it was really good because I got to hang out with some junior scholars that I kind of knew from Twitter. And I went to a bunch of panels and and I had fun being a discussant on a panel about coups, which are all hip and all the rage these days, and also got some really good feedback on the Steve and Dave and Phil project, which is, I want to say, culminating. It's not as far along as your project, partly because you, you don't have to talk to other people about what you figured out. I, I have to negotiate uh, with my colleagues about what it is that we've seen across the world. But we're getting close to being done with the research we have to revisit a couple of spots, but we're meeting in December to try to have some coherence to our story and figure out how we're going to organize the book. So that's up ahead of us. That was Denver. And I was in Hamburg because there's a peace and security research center there that is looking to partner with 
well, Carlton. So that was an interesting set of conversations. And it was also good for my research because there's some people there that might help me uh, when I go back to Berlin and catch up on some folks that I didn't get a chance to interview the last time. So it was, it was a very productive time. And I've never been to Hamburg before. And Hamburg is very pretty. And I ate way too much Spatzel and had uh, a sufficient amount of beer. Nice. It's funny how your trip conversations always boil down to food. You know, my parents were very food obsessed. I'm now food obsessed. What can I say? One thing we talked about last time, uh, you look back at your research notes. I want to get your perspective on this challenge that we have of Iraq, where they've been repressing their protesters with deadly force. And given that Canada is in Baghdad and other places training people, are we complicit or are we not involved with these particular folks? So when I went to Iraq in April, I got to understand the delicate division of labor between the EU, NATO, and the U.S. coalition. And here's what I learned. The EU advisory mission works with the Ministry of Interior. The Canadian-led NATO operation is working with the Ministry of Defense. Then you have the U.S.-led coalition talking to both. The challenge in Iraq then, after its defeat of ISIS, is for the government and security forces to work with these international partners so that safety and security tasks can go from green to blue. That means more community policing and less of an army presence. So as far as direct training of the police and the military goes, that falls within the U.S. coalition's mandate, who do provide combat training still. But on the NATO side, there's a lot of stuff like curriculum reform, working with Iraqi military academies. There is some tactical training like countering IEDs or vehicle maintenance, but you wouldn't see NATO trainers assisting Iraqi security forces as they respond to protests. In Baghdad, for example, NATO trainers are working with the Computer Science School of the University of Defense. So we're not teaching them how to do crowd control, so we should not feel that guilty about what they're doing. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the way you frame the question <laughs> is something I feel very uncomfortable uh, answering. But uh, when you look at what NATO is actually doing and what the Canadians are doing within the NATO mission, the training tasks are, are actually quite clear. And there's actually also a big advisory component, which leads uh, NATO military officers to work directly with various directorates of the Ministry of Defense. And so, you know, in the day to day, you wouldn't see the kind of training that would lead to what the problematic outcomes that we're seeing right now in Baghdad. Well, this just speaks to a larger issues about whenever you're dealing with uh, military assistance, with mill to mill, as they put it, of different militaries working together. There's always a question of whether you're abetting violence, whether the people you're working with are doing bad things and how much distance you should have from them. And there are severe trade-offs with this because if you don't end up engaging with these militaries, then they don't get uh, alternative perspectives. They don't get trained in how to do things the right way. And so there's always a difficult gray area. And what's nice about your discussion there is that it shows that Canada, NATO, other actors are involved in Iraq, but they're involved with other parts of the military. So they're not complicit. They're, A, they're not supporting these people in doing what they've done. B, you know, we haven't trained them poorly in this matter. It's just not our responsibility. They, the, the, the locals have more responsibility over this than we do. But the question is always going to be raised, should we be uh, interacting with these people at all? Because some faction of the military is doing bad things. And I think a withdrawal or disengagement in this particular case is a bad idea because there are things we get out of it and there are things that they're doing better, even if some elements of their military are doing things that are inappropriate. There are other ways for us to engage in our displeasure, leaning on the Iraqis to do a better job of treating their 
protesters, but this is always going to be a problem in any of these places. Yeah, well, the international presence at least can apply pressure. I mean, they work on a day-to-day basis with both the Ministry of the Interior and the Ministry of Defense. So at the very least, when they see that something is problematic, they can at least express concerns. And and we have seen last week a bunch of people getting fired Mm -hmm. on both the, the army side and the police side. Speaking about tough choices, we had an election last week. I happened to be in Canada for that one day in between my trips. And you voted before you left the country. What should we expect from this new Trudeau government, which is pretty much the same old government, but with less of that juicy majority stuff? I went uh, and took another glance at, at the platform just to remind myself of what some of the promises were when it came to foreign policy, security and defense. Uh, What we see is more peacekeeping, support for the women, peace and security agenda, doubling down on the feminist international assistance policy and promoting human rights. For the Canadian Armed Forces, there's emphasis on training and capacity building, speaking of training, disaster relief operations, humanitarian intervention and working through NATO and the UN. Not much new there. The Arctic gets two paragraphs and Mm -hmm. the platform document hints at reforms in procurement and in intelligence collection and management. So that's what the platform says. And then, of course, we can look to strong, secure, and engage the defense policy documents for, for further guidance. Yeah, and they did mention in the campaign that they want to set up a defense procurement agency to do all the procurement. And that could be productive. It could be problematic. It kind of depends. One of the things that our colleague uh, Phil Glagasse often talks about is that if you add more and more more layers of oversight, it's going to make things slower and more problematic because then you don't really know who's really doing the overseeing. But if, if it ends up consolidating all the oversight into one branch, then it might make that one entity more responsive and it might make the military more responsive. It might make the contractors have an easier handle on things. So the devil is, of course, in the details about whether this is adding more things or replacing, but that, that was just a quick uh, mention along the way. I don't know if there, were, if there were any details attached to it, but I guess we'll be waiting to hear about that, uh, which I guess raises the question of we have a, a minority government, we have potentially new ministers, new cabinet. Have you heard anything about uh, how deck chairs may be rearranged? Well, there are rumors about the next defense minister. So I'm hearing the name Karen McCrimmon. Mm-hmm. So she's a retired lieutenant colonel and a second time liberal MP. And we'll see if she'll be part of the new gender balanced cabinet, which will be revealed in November. And then that leads me to a question to you, whether or not you think the CDS will remain in place. Well, I've had that conversation with the CDS himself in front of a large audience like two years ago <laughs> when I thought that being around for three years suggested they might get replaced soon. I do think that it's now approaching five years, and that's that's much longer than the average. And I think that this government was waiting until after the election to make any decisions about on that. Certainly, if the conservatives came into power, they would have come up with a new uh, chief of defense staff. So I would guess sometime in the new year, one officer told me off the record, so I'm not going to say who it was, but one of the challenges is we've had a lot of rearranging of the three-star officers of the past couple of years because of the turmoil caused by the Norman trial and all the rest. Anybody who's a three-star officer in a, a lot of key positions has just been there for a few, for less than a year. So they want to have those folks serve for at least a year before we start rearranging yet again. So it kind of depends on who the liberals have in mind. But my guess is you probably won't see anything like that until the new year, in part because you won't have the defense minister, if there's a new one, get settled before they start making that decision. So I don't think anything will happen before before the new year on that. But I do think that after the new year, it's more likely than not that John Vance will retire and he'll be replaced by someone. So we'll have to wait and see on what happens in the new year. But right now, our focus is, of course, on the most important holiday of the year, which is Halloween. What is your favorite Halloween costume, Steph? 
I think that goes back to high school. I had a really nice Studio 54 outfit. I threw <laughs> a huge party at my house where I wouldn't let people in if they didn't have a costume. It was epic. Which Star Wars character will you dress up as, Steve? I am not dressed up as a Star Wars character <laughs> this year. One of my favorite costumes recently was uh, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, I wore a Star Wars outfit, a, a Jedi outfit, with my Mickey Mouse ears to represent the corporate integration of Star Wars and Disney. So that, that was one of my recent ones that I kind of enjoyed. I do dress up on Halloween, usually for the trick-or-treaters. What I miss is that when I taught a big class at McGill, the UNICEF kids would come by and basically make a deal with my class that if they gave enough to UNICEF, then I would dress up on Halloween. And so I would usually try to dress up in something that matched thematically with the lecture of that week. So one year it was colonialism, was the lecture, so I dressed up as Indiana Jones and raised the question of it belongs in whose museum. And the last mm -hmm. time I did it, dressed up as uh, Dread Pirate Roberts from Princess Bride and talked a little bit about piracy, I think. Mm. Uh, those are my favorite costumes. Tomorrow night, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be very particularly inspired. I've got a onesie I might wear, and my wife found a, a doll boo from Monsters, Inc., that was in my daughter's bedroom. So I might pull that out and, and carry around uh, Boo and, and look like a big baby. Now, I dare you to link that costume to an IR lecture theme. Well, you know, I am teaching tomorrow to my undergraduate class, and I'm teaching individual levels of analyses, which is all about psychology. So delayed adolescence, immaturity, I, I could see how this mm -hmm. might fit. Particularly yeah, big babies. Big babies. <laughs> It uh, goes with a toddler theme that Dan Dresner has about Donald Trump. Yeah, I can see that working. There uh, you go. Do you have any uh, favorite uh, Halloween or horror movies? I don't think I have a favorite scary movie in particular, uh, but I do enjoy zombie movies or zombie series. I really liked The Walking Dead. And as you know, we have a shared affinity for the book World War Z, which also got turned into a movie. But I don't really associate all these zombie movies with Halloween necessarily except that they inspire a lot of costumes. Well, one of the frustrating things about the World War Z movie was that they took a lot of the best parts of the book and tossed it out. And some of the best parts, interesting parts about the book are sort of the dynamics that happen within Africa, that the South Africans develop a particular strategy that becomes globalized to fight the zombie menace. And I'm going to use that as a segue or a plug for the featured interview with Lindy Heineken, who I interviewed last summer in Lisbon. She's from South Africa, and she studies the South African military and also issues about military unions. People should listen to her interview, because one of the questions I've always had is, why hasn't South Africa had more problems? I mean, it certainly has problems, but they transition much more, more peacefully from apartheid to democracy than we might have expected. So it's a great interview you have with Lindy Heineken. And before that, we'll hear from PhD candidate Elikem Semeni, who uh, does research on Africa and has some hot takes on Canada's policies towards Africa. And then we'll conclude. I'll rant about the movie World War Z, uh, special Halloween peeve. My name is Elikem Chamini. I am a PhD candidate at Dalhousie University. Uh, I'm originally from Ghana, currently writing from Winnipeg. Thank you so much for joining us on Battle Rhythm, Elikem. Thanks so much for having me. I'll start with the first question. And you are working on security governance in sub-Saharan Africa. Can you tell us a bit more about your doctoral research? 
Absolutely. My uh, research, I think about it as a, a multi-research uh, uh, initiative. Uh, it's really broad. So I am looking at security governance, specifically in Africa, through the English school perspective. So I'm using the International Society lens to trace and understand some normative practices around security governance in Africa. Specifically, I'm looking at four normative practices which I consider uh, cardinal in terms of uh, in, in, in importance to the African security governance mechanism. So those four uh, normative practices include democratic governance, African sanctions, security governance and peace operations, and international criminal justice. In reading uh, or coming across the English school, I realized, you know, for us to really understand these processes on the continent, using the international society perspective to trace this development helps us understand these normative practices holistically. So we see that Africa sees itself as a distinct regional society you know, different from the global international society. And so it tries to, you know, come up with its own uh, normative practices that define what international relations in Africa looks like or should look like, which differentiates it from the greater global international society, as I mentioned earlier. So the PhD journey is not always linear or predictable, but may I ask you how you came up with your dissertation topic? This is a very interesting question for me personally because I got into my PhD hoping to build on my master's uh, dissertation which looked at conflict and natural resources in Africa. And so one afternoon I was having a conversation with my supervisor David Black uh, and then we started talking about the English school and connecting it to the idea of international society and normative practices. And it just hit me, uh, especially with a research work I was doing for him, that, you know, actually it would be very useful to look at Africa and what's going on in Africa through the English school perspective or lens. It's not so completely different from what I'm doing, but a slightly different uh, angle of looking at security governance on the continent. Well, it sounds a lot more linear than my own journey. So well done on, on building a little bit, at least from your MA research into the PhD. And you're also interested in uh, Canadian foreign policy towards Africa. I thought it'd be interesting to hear your takes on whether or not you think Canada gets it right. Uh, that's an interesting question. And, and what I usually say to this is, and, and especially with my research, I think what Africa is doing these days is to be assertive in dealing with its own uh, security problems, which was unlike, you know, the situation a few years ago until from the switch from the OAU to the African Union, we realized that Africans are more willing and ready to deal with their problems. And, and the only issue that comes up every single time is the problem of funding and resources. So for me, uh, whenever I, I get asked about what Canada can do uh, in Africa, I think helping develop these normative frameworks and institutions and making them actually work is where Canada can be uh, more useful to Africa 
in, in the, at least in the area of security governance. So providing enough resources for Africans themselves to carry out peacekeeping missions, providing training, for instance, and there are several instances of providing funding and resources for uh, Africans, you know, engaging with the AU and really sort of helping bring the aspirations of the framework, such as, you know, democratic governance, uh, security governance and peace operations into reality, instead of, say, boots on the ground or sending in. So um, Canada's best bet or the best way to get it right is real engagement with Africa in terms of supporting them, especially in resources and uh, logistical support amongst others. More of an enabling role, and I definitely see that emerging, Canada trying to take a bigger role in training as opposed to sending lots of boots on the ground within the context of missions. Absolutely, I agree with that. And Canada has you know, been doing that for, for, a, for a long time now, and I think increasing that and making it even more impactful taking advantage of already existing training facilities such as the, the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Center. That, you know, is a, a hub for training security experts in the West African sub-region, for instance, uh, would be one of the ways to really help with, you know, adequate logistical and financial backing. That's very interesting. And so, Elikim, not to bring you in an awkward terrain of discussion, but I understand you're in the writing stage of your dissertation now, and maybe the end of the dissertation is in sight. Can you tell me about the next steps or your future plans post-dissertation? Yes, absolutely. It is an awkward question because um, <laughs> at this stage, I enjoying the writing process, uh, perhaps enjoying it way too much to finish quickly, <laughs> but I'm focused on, on getting through the writing stage and then thinking about the next plans, but it would most likely, like I mentioned in the beginning, uh, my research is sort of, I think about the dissertation as a foundational uh, research for future research work. I love that. I think this is great advice for anyone listening who's got a big writing project right now is to just enjoy the luxury of time. Absolutely. Uh, and it's a great privilege and I urge everybody to enjoy the process. Alakim, thank you so much for being on Battle Rhythm, and we look forward to having you again. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Lindy Heineken of the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Stellenbosch University, South Africa. And you are also the head of the International Sociological Association's Research Committee on Armed Forces and Conflict Resolution. That's correct. At Ergomas, uh, which is a conference we're currently at, what have you been doing here? Well, I've been presenting one paper. I, I, I always think of myself as um, a jack of all trades and master of none, primarily because it is, I'm, I'm just about the only military sociologist in South Africa, so I work mm -hmm. on a diverse range of issues. And this specific project that I've delivered here together with Nina Villen, Villen from Belgium was looking at the reintegration of 
soldiers coming back from peacekeeping operations. There's been very little research done mm-hmm. on this. I didn't find anything particularly new compared to international literature, but there's been a complete dearth of literature in the South African context mm-hmm. on the effect of deployments and then reintegration back into the unit as well as the family unit. What have been the major deployments for the South African military? The, the main deployments have been to firstly, the first main deployment was to Burundi. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest deployments have been to the Democratic Republic of Congo and mm-hmm. then, of course, to Darfur, Sudan. So those are pretty tough conflict zones. Absolutely. And so you'd think that people coming back would maybe have PTSD, maybe have other other challenges. Have, mm-hmm. Has that been something that the South African military has taken seriously, or is it something that they, these individuals are experiencing and they don't get much help? I think they are experiencing it, but even when our contacted the, the Military Psychological Institute and we spoke to various health uh, practitioners, it does not look, unfortunately, that many people report this. Mm-hmm. South Africa Defence Force and society is a very patriarchal, mm-hmm. very warrior-like culture, mm-hmm. and that could contribute to the, to the fact that they do not report it. But what came out of my research findings was clear, mm-hmm. is that they do suffer from PTSD, because mm-hmm. in one of my interviews, a soldier started to cry, mm-hmm. um, not because of being in a conflict per se, mm-hmm. or being caught up in an ambush, but just having to deal with the, the extent of the violence and the extreme poverty and the impact on children, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and the senselessness of the fighting is something that they need to to deal with as well. So we always think of of PTSD in terms of trauma of of being caught up in an ambush or Mm -hmm. in a conflict, but it goes much further than that. And then, you know, the typical symptoms of coping, uh, restlessness, not being able to sleep, high levels of anxiety, high Mm -hmm. levels of anger, feelings of just wanting to be alone, break out um, of their home situation and talk to their peers rather than engage really love these issues, but the mm-hmm. family that don't really understand it mm-hmm. was, I would suppose, unique in the South African situation. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with the literature, so mm-hmm. I, I just didn't realize that people, many people studying this, I think I fall into the trap of, of not thinking about the impact of peacekeeping on the peacekeepers. I mean, it was clear that, for instance, the Canadian, famous Canadian Canadian Romeo Dallaire, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very clear that he struggled mm-hmm. with what he's experienced, but most peacekeeping missions aren't genocide, and, and that was seemed to be one of the few cases where, where it was pretty apparent or, or well or spoken out very much. Um, so it's interesting to see that that there are other scholars besides you working on this whole idea of integrating peacekeepers back. Are there other challenges besides PTSD for for reintegrating units from? their peacekeeping operation back into the home military? I, I think here the Americans are much better than the South Africans in that they at least have a program where they've got spousal support, mm-hmm. where one of the things that the peacekeepers reported on was that when they came back home and after what they've experienced, that the families had little understanding of the nature of the missions, the effect mm-hmm. of the missions mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they felt that much more support should be given to to the wives in terms of just briefing them on the nature of the missions, what their loved ones are experiencing over there, what to look out for, mm-hmm. um, and the challenge. And, and the added to this is the fact that the military families are very dispersed, so they're not located 
on a single base mm -hmm. with, in South Africa. And that makes it difficult as well for the military to reach the families to mm -hmm. be able to provide these type of support systems. One of the key findings of this particular research was that the soldiers themselves get sufficient resilience training. Mm -hmm. They know when they come back home, this is what they're going to experience, this is how their wives are going to react, this is how their children are going to react. So it's not strange for them. Mm -hmm. But their, um, their families don't get any resilience training. You've made recommendations, I assume. Yes. Has, has, have you found a receptive audience with, for, within the South African military, South African yes. Department so of Defense? I, I, I pride myself in being an applied sociological practitioner as mm -hmm. well. I've got the international accreditation for that, which came about as a result of the fact that my, my research really does straddle that, mm -hmm. in that I, I do academic research, but then at the same time brief the military on the findings and then help them to think through the problems and make recommendations. So a lot of my research is, in fact, infiltrated at various levels into policy, which is where I like to find myself. I'm not an ivory tower academic. Well, there's, there's fewer of those every day. I think we're, well, most of us are, are wandering beyond the ivory tower, and indeed this podcast is part of that. I assume that, that your discussions or work in this area is probably better, more favorably received by the military than your work on military unionism. Yes, now that has been, um, you've obviously done some research on that. Now that was very highly controversial. Um, in fact, it, I told our military already when I was a very young scholar of um, just having my honors degree, which in our South Africa is your fourth year, mm -hmm. so that they were going to get unions in the military, <laughs> right back in 1990. And of course, that was also at the time of the transition within South Africa and one of the, when of course this became real and they did get a military union was established, I was called in by President Nelson Mandela as a, um, an academic advisor on this specific subject and where he wanted to know why his soldiers want to now suddenly belong to unions and I explained, you know, um, this is there's a spillover, and I explained what we call the force field mm -hmm. using the theoretical different models of manly. And I explained, <laughs> explained that there are certain forces that, that result in some countries having unions and others not. And then, of course, he sent off his military commanders that were present that were horrified that this little girl from you know, UCT, University of Cape Town, which they at that time considered the University of Communist Training, <laughs> um, was making these recommendations. And then it actually did lead to a revision of the labor relations regulations. However, not sufficient enough for it not to be challenged in a constitutional mm -hmm. court, which then meant that my master's degree, which was on the soldier as an employee, mm -hmm. was used as the reference document. Wow. And um, yes, I had to, to provide a whole lot of the primary material that I used that I obtained from Charlie Moskos, uh -huh. um, who had also written on military unions right back when the threat was posed in 1977 uh -huh. um, in, in the USA. So yes, so that has got me a rather controversial name. So is the South African's military now unionized? Or? It's unionized, yes. It's been unionized since the court case, the constitutional court case in 
we are we? 1997. Okay, so about 22. So it's a long time. It's not a good relationship at all. Um, both parties did not listen to my advice, mm -hmm. if I can be as blunt as, or presumptuous as that. But oh, South Africa has, instead of following uh, the kind of a German model or the, the Dutch model, mm -hmm. which has been one of cooperative pluralism, or even corporatism, you can say, mm -hmm. They've ended up having a really confrontational relationship, a mm. very pluralist and us-them relationship which doesn't work well within a military context. Mm. I had four case studies. The other mm. case study in my PhD was Canada. Mm. They also could not afford to... They tried to follow the Canadian route, which I call theoretically is more what we call new unitrist approach, mm. which is investing in human resources, narrowing the... Creating alternative dispute resolution mechanisms mm -hmm. and keeping those quite short, and you've got various divisions for certain grievances, mm -hmm. but they didn't. That wasn't didn't function very effectively. So you need massive human resource investment mm -hmm. to make a new unitarianist model work. Mm -hmm. Where um, in South Africa, it's it's gone a different way. Although, if I'm I may add to this, I'm, um, I'm still a protagonist of the unions, and mm -hmm. I will tell you why. Because I, our military has become very politicized, the chain of command has been disrupted as a result of that, so we're ending up with three chains of command. We've got the official chain of command, mm -hmm. the bureaucratic chain of command, which has been infiltrated, you can say, a, a typical classical neo-patrimonialist neo system which has crept into to the, the structure which is now politicized. So people don't have any face. They go right, they jump straight to the political channel. Mm -hmm. And the only way to, to challenge the abuses that come with this, mm -hmm. the kind of corruption, undermining of authority that mm -hmm. comes with this, is to resort to the union, which is then takes it to court, mm -hmm. to the civilian courts. And they have won every single <laughs> court case. My goodness that they have taken to court, every single court case, including the dismissal of soldiers which allegedly went on an illegal strike mm -hmm. and that was summarily dismissed by the Minister of Defence. And the other thing why I think the military union is important is because they are, they are the watchdog. Mm -hmm. They are literally performing the role of a very active civil society organisation, which when there is racism, when there is abuse, where there needs deaths in the military, mm. when there has been a deployment of soldiers which have not met the parliamentary mandate, they have really questioned this. So they are in a certain way a voice for the soldiers. Well, that's really interesting to me because I'm currently working on a project that compares many of the world's democracies and how their legislatures play a role in this. When you were describing what the union was doing just there, I was thinking, well, isn't that what the job of the legislature to point out, whether the parliamentary mandate has been met, whether, you know, investigations when there's failure. So can well, I take it that the South African uh, legislative well, system doesn't work that way? It, it does. It does. It's meant to. But as per our previous discussion, our parliamentary oversight mechanisms are, are very weak. And with the, especially under the Zuma administration, mm. there has been uh, absolute abuse by the exec uh, executive. A classic example of this is the um, deployment to the Central African Republic, mm -hmm. which resulted in the death of um, 13 soldiers, supposedly there to guard um, and assist 
Bozizwe, the then president, but why would you then send your elite special forces to do that? Mm -hmm. So there was other ulterior motives, and they were deployed on a mandate which was not approved by parliament. Mm -hmm. So the South African military can be deployed even if there's not a parliamentary mandate? There must be a parliamentary mandate, but I mean, when the chief of the of the defense force, the commander-in-chief, which is the president, mm. sends it off without, there was a huge public outcry okay. because of that, mm -hmm. um, a big pushback, but it did highlight the weaknesses. There was a mandate, mm -hmm. but like a lot of mandates, it stretched there was a mission creep beyond the mandate mm -hmm. that was initially signed. Okay, so that's something that we could all study as, as uh, countries that vary how much they creep beyond Absolutely. their missions. Absolutely. We have exactly the same with internal deployments, mm -hmm. where the mandate is only in support of the police, where it is absolutely necessary, mm -hmm. and then you find that the military is being deployed quite extensively mm -hmm. without it having been approved by Parliament. So that's a very good angle to actually look at. Mm -hmm. You By that you can actually determine how strong your civil military, your civil control of the military actually is. That's, that's really important and really useful for me. I appreciate that. One of the questions we have for those of us who have relatively little knowledge of South Africa is when we were growing up we all saw that as being the, the future catastrophe and the fact that it that the transition was much less violent than expected, that South Africa's democracy has not been perfect, but there has been an absence of civil war, there's been an absence of coups. And so I guess we are satisfied with our low bar of what we, you know, what we expected. And you're pointing out that there's some real holes in, 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 in South African democracy. And so I guess one question I have is that as the for a transition from a, a white minority government, how did that impact the military in terms of, is, is the officer corps more representative of Af South African society now? What is the state of the South African military given the history of race relations in, in your country? I think South African's transition was very, very cleverly managed. Mm -hmm. and, I, I because, and I will tell you why and answer your question too. <laughs> Through this example, sure. the compromise, it was an elite transition. Mm -hmm. So we had a revolution without a revolution. Mm -hmm. It was an elite transition where there was the decision that the military would be left in the hands of the whites for now, which gave them the security, mm -hmm. knowing that the political transition would be a, a transition to a black majority government. And that move enabled the transition. So the whites felt that we've still got the military in our back pocket if we really need and South Africa was on the brink of a coup. Mm -hmm. I remember standing on the parade ground at the military academy and people were talking about whether Constance Pauline was going to say, we're going to pull it now. Mm -hmm. That was on the eve, 23 April 1994. Mm -hmm. And he realized that that would just plunge the country into absolute chaos and civil war, mm -hmm. and that it, it wasn't. They could do it. They had enough support and divisions within the military to be able to do that. And over time, of course, with this transition, it was a four-year period of transition. Mm -hmm. And within that period, the civil service and public service was relatively left the way it was. And then slowly a process of changing the racial representation has changed over time. So an assertive, and I use the word assertive, 
affirmative action programs that was implemented the start of the Becky administration, which led to a rapid racial transformation of our, of our military. However, it wasn't just a racial transformation. Of the percentage of revolutionary forces integrated into our military, 17%, mm -hmm. they have assumed the senior leadership positions, which has meant that you've got members from the former revolutionary forces with a relatively low level of education because they left the country very early, with a lack of understanding of a corporate military mm -hmm. or of with conventional experience in the military, leading the military. So the central thing that they could hold on to has been transformation. Mm -hmm. And transformation relates to racial transformation and then more recently gender transformation. And mm -hmm. That has dominated the military to such an extent that military efficiency and effectiveness hasn't entered the equation. Mm -hmm. So that is where we are now with the military being almost all the present chiefs of the different armed service and all the, the heads of the various branches, such as infantry, mm. artillery, and so on, also being from the former revolutionary forces. And the an absolute exodus now of all your experienced middle cadres, so the operational hub mm -hmm. of the military has remained white mm -hmm. up until now, but they are all leaving the military within the next four years. Mm -hmm. So your, your corporate knowledge and experience is just going to be an absolute brain drain. Coupled with that in terms of representativity of our defence force is that whites are no longer joining the military. Mm. So we will be ending up with a military which is it's completely African, predominantly African, less so coloured in India. And in our previous conversation you, you said that uh, whites were leaving or are mostly going to the private military sector. A lot of them which have left over the years have mm. joined the private military sector. Yes. Uh, um, and, and the so ones that are more recently leaving, they, they're really the ones that are now reaching retirement. Okay. They're the diehards. The initial, when the, the defense force was downsized, mm -hmm. the, the first units that were cut were the counterinsurgency units. And of course, there's a massive market for, for people with counterinsurgency skills in Africa. And so you, as I, we were talking earlier, you indicated that the private security forces that are developing in South Africa have had an impact on the profession, uh, the military profession. Absolutely. And uh, could you explain that a little bit? Well, I mean, uh, the private security sector in South Africa is bigger than the police and the military combined. Mm -hmm. You know, it's massive. It's the fastest growing sector in the country, given the kind of problems that the country is facing. Um, and it has been those with the with the marketable military skills, such as the special forces, the paratroopers, the military intelligence, the logistics, mm -hmm. people in logistics, the military medics, those are the ones that have left. Mm -hmm. So it's led to an atrophy of, of skills mm -hmm. through the years. And so does, does that mean now that when the South African military wants to do something, they have to subcontract out to these ah, private? Very interesting question, because we've got legislation that prevents that. Mm -hmm. um, so South Africa has got quite draconian laws Mm -hmm. in terms of the use of private military contractors. So what what this has meant is that their expeditionary capacity and potential has been completely limited because they have not wanted mm -hmm. to contract in the private mm -hmm. security and military sector to assist in providing the kind of support. 
which has meant a couple of things. It um, meant that it has battled to deploy a battalion in, in rotation for these different peacekeeping missions mm -hmm. because the reserve forces also in the process collapsed because this whole system of renew, re, rejuvenation, which is called the military skills development system, um, has also not rendered the, the, the mass of people that they would hope would go into the reserve, mm -hmm. primarily because the military has not been had the money to recruit people. Mm -hmm. I guess to summarize, the South African military is less, much less effective than it used to be. That for domestic local purposes or uses, it's not the South African military, it's private military contractors that are doing management of violence yes, in the society. Absolutely. And so I guess things are trending in a, in, a, in a negative direction. Yes. I think that our military is at the point of absolute implosion, and maybe it should implode. Mm -hmm. um, but if, it's not the first time that the South African military has imploded. It's imploded um, just before the, the Second Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, it was it had to be completely reconstructed. Mm -hmm. um, so under the Smuts government, it had collapsed and into virtually disrepair. And um, I think there's some... The, the, what complicates the South African situation is that there's very little public debate. Mm -hmm. There's complete apathy towards the military. So there's little knowledge, there's little understanding, um, there's little vision mm -hmm. um, in terms of how the military should restructure. And the vision that is being proposed by those who have put some plans on the table require the downscaling of the military quite substantially, which is not a politically a popular move. Mm -hmm given the fact that the military veterans in South Africa are quite a rowdy voice. So to put more of the military veterans into South African society with a high level of unemployment, with low levels of skills and ability to find work is not a popular choice, but that is the only way. Our personnel costs, right, of the entire budget, mm -hmm. now listen to this, it normally should be 40, 30, 30, right? Mm -hmm. Ours is close on 80 for personnel costs. So basically, you, you, you're paying people to sit in post but have got no means to actually do their work. That's not unique to South Africa. Uh, one of the challenges of measuring 2% contribution in NATO, for instance, is some members of NATO spend most of their money on personnel. Mm. Uh, and in fact, it becomes sort of a welfare kind of project where this is one way to make sure that unemployment rates stay lower. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't really give much in the way of capability for dealing with yeah. whatever you want to deal with. Become a wealthy organization. Yeah, and so it sounds like South Africa is in, a, in, in a, a bit of a trouble spot, and it doesn't sound like there's parties that have as their, one of their priorities uh, improving the quality of the military at this point. Yeah, and you have other additional problems associated with this, which is quite a high HIV AIDS infection rate, mm -hmm. about a fifth of the forces being HIV positive. Wow. So having to deal with that additional challenge, mm -hmm. the, the impact it has on your health budget, and the impact that the military veterans are having on the health budget is astronomical. I do not think our military is a threat to society. Well, that's a, that's a positive <laughs> note to end on. I want to thank you for your time. And so we look forward to your forthcoming book. Yes. What's it called? Um, South Africa's Post-Apartheid Military, Lost in Transition and Transformation. Thank you. <laughs>
one of the general peeves people have is that a work of fiction is turned from a book into a movie poorly. And since this is Halloween, I'll focus on a zombie movie, a zombie book, World War Z. The joy of World War Z is that in the book, it shows how this epidemic happens and how it spreads and how countries respond to it. And it has a lot of variation in how individual countries respond, how they learn from each other. It has some good politics, some good civil relations, some good international relations, some good international organizational politics. It's got a lot of meat to it. It's a really interesting, clever book by, the, by Max Brooks, the son of Mel Brooks. And then when they turned it into a movie, most of all the goodness was wiped utterly away. And I'd say that one of the key reasons why, besides that it was a Brad Pitt movie and they had to make him the star, is that it focused on fast zombies. That when you look at movies, most movies, if the zombie is slow, then the humans have a chance to adapt poorly or well. If the zombies are fast, all they can do is run and there's not much agency, there's not much interest, there's not much dynamic stuff going on about how the various actors play out. 28 Days Later was an exception to this, but my pet peeve today is simply this. If you make the zombies fast, you make the movie boring. So let's keep our zombies slow and our movies more fun, and that way we can inject all kinds of social science into our zombie movies. And so my peeve is also a plea. Read war, read World Wars... So my peeve is also a plea. Read World War Z. You won't regret it. It's one of the best pieces of fiction of the 21st century. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.